Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In the fall of 2008, the U.S. economy was spinning out of control. The housing crisis had sent the financial sector into a tailspin. And Wall Street demanded that Congress pony up a $700 billion, no-strings-attached bailout. If they didn't, there would be financial Armageddon. With a gun to its head, Congress eventually passed the bailout bill. Huge payouts were made to financial institutions with little accountability, and the Great Recession followed. Twelve years later, it's starting to feel a bit like deja vu, isn't it? Some of my Republican friends still have not given up on the need to punish the poor and working people. One of the largest corporate bailouts with as few strings as possible in American history. Now is not the time to worry about the national debt. Today on the show, we're going to talk to someone who made the right call when it counted 12 years ago. Someone who predicted that the approach the White House was taking was too weak to seriously address the banking and housing crises. Because if we want to avoid the mistakes of 2008 and 2009, we might want to listen to him this time around. I'm Ryan Grimm, D.C. Bureau Chief for The Intercept. Welcome to Deconstructed. Back in 2008, when I was a congressional reporter working for Politico, I spent hours in the hallways of the Capitol chasing lawmakers who felt huge pressure to deliver the ransom that Wall Street was demanding. And one morning there, I ran into the economist James Galbraith. He was on the Hill to brief a group of congressmen from both parties who were skeptical of what bank lobbyists were telling them. He told me then that what was being proposed would not be enough to prevent a major recession. A few months after that conversation on Capitol Hill, lawmakers were back at the drawing board. The financial crisis had sparked an economic collapse. Congress was preparing to pass the famous $787 billion stimulus bill. So I reached back out to Galbraith and asked what advice he was now offering. He used an analogy that has stuck with me since. Imagine there's a massive hurricane headed your way. You're the mayor of the town and you have a warehouse full of sandbags. You have to decide how many sandbags to use, but you're not sure just how big the hurricane will be. Some people are urging you to use all of the sandbags, but others think you should just use half of them and save the rest for the next time they're needed. If you use too few and you're wrong, you lose everything. If you use too many, well, you have extra sandbags lying around. So for James Galbraith, the answer was simple. Use them all. He warned Democrats that if they went too small with their stimulus, the result would be a deep recession, a slow recovery, and mass unemployment. But they went small anyway. Everything he predicted came true. The following year, Democrats were wiped out by a different sort of flood, the Tea Party wave in the 2010 midterms. By election day, the unemployment rate was 9.8%. There was a lot of pain around the country, and voters punished the Democrats for it. Losing that election effectively ended the legislative ambitions of the Obama administration. He never got back his House majority. If a potential Joe Biden administration wants to avoid the same fate, they might want to listen more closely to Galbraith this time around. 
because he says that what we need today is entirely different than what he recommended over a decade ago. He made that argument in a recent essay for The Intercept, which was edited by my colleague Nausicaa Renner. Nausicaa, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ryan, for having me. Yeah, so Nausicaa, why Galbraith? So I was interested in getting outside of the political orthodoxy when it comes to thinking about the economy. You know, as you noted, in 2008, Galbraith had really different ideas than everybody on the Hill about what exactly it was going to take to fix the economy. And he's always seemed to me to be somebody who's really clear-eyed, but also not horribly politically biased. I really wanted to hear from him what sort of radical vision was actually necessary to get us back up and running again. So we asked him to write a piece, and for the show this week, I called him up to talk more about what he thinks the U.S. economy needs to get back on its feet. Jamie Galbraith, welcome to Deconstructed. Thank you very much. Good to be with you. So I want to just start by asking you a question that I've been asked a lot in the course of this election and in the course of the pandemic, which is, what is the economy going to look like in the long run? If we keep doing what we're doing now, how many small businesses do you think will survive? And what does the economy look like in a year? Oh, a year is a, is a long way away from where we are now. I mean, the situation is extremely fluid. It's extremely unpredictable and extremely fragile. Uh, we know we're in an exceedingly dangerous period in which fundamentally the economy was to a degree stitched together in April by pouring a great deal of money into uh, people's pockets, into the pockets of businesses. And a good deal of that is now drying up. You have many, many businesses that are hanging on because the owners have some capital and they may help hope that things will turn, get better. Uh, but if they don't get better, they're not going to be there indefinitely. Uh, and so we could see another wave of uh, of closings and another wave of unemployment as the situation unfolds over the course of the fall and winter. So the worst is definitely not over. Uh, the dangers are certainly not over. Uh, we, we don't have the pandemic under control to begin with, so we don't have a real basis for asking people to go back to their ordinary retreats. But beyond that, there's a huge psychological impact. People are uncertain of their future, their own jobs. They've either ended or they might end pretty soon. Uh, they're facing cutbacks, even if they're in relatively stable sectors like state and local government, they're facing severe budget cutbacks. So everybody's going to be looking at their own, uh, you know, own bank account, their own savings and saying, look, I'm going to be storing up to make sure I can make my rent, make my mortgage payment, pay my utility bills. And I'm not going to be going out, uh, even if the health situation improves, I'm not going to be going out to restaurants or bars or concerts or, or any activities, for that matter, that I can do without for the time being. And so you have a, an enormous retrenchment, which is only partly the, the direct result of the health uh, situation, but also because people are uncertain of their economic futures, and rightly so. So let's say that Joe Biden wins the election in November, and he comes in in January. What, what is his strategy to deal with this? Well, uh, we we don't really know uh, because there are conflicting signals coming out of the Biden campaign. And some people have said, well, he's going to be the next Franklin Roosevelt. And others have said, no, he's not really going to do very much uh, because the cover is bare. That was Ted Kaufman's unfortunate message. So that needs to be clarified as to what 
uh, you know, uh, Vice President Biden's uh, intentions actually are. And I can talk more effectively about what they should be. <laughs> we don't know, which is where in his thinking these uh, various currents actually, uh, who's got the upper hand. Well, what you wrote in your piece is that the signal is that the Biden administration will be taking its clues from 2008 and reacting in a similar way. Yeah, that seems to yeah, that's fair enough. That seems to be the case. That uh, that what one sees in the is the dominant tendency is that they believe that what they did in 2008, what well, 2009, 2010 worked. Uh, that they can uh, pull the economy out through a short term program of stimulus and then shift to retrenchment of one kind or another uh, in, in the uh, you know in the following years. Uh, and I think it's fair to say that that is a, uh, a projection of a situation that was very different than from what we have now. It doesn't have the complication of the uh, of, of the public health issue, and it didn't have uh, the kind of uh, it did have a certain degree of uncertainty. But the uncertainty over what was going to happen next was resolved in a fairly short period of time, and that's not necessarily going to be the case now. And so tell us what's different about how the Obama administration reacted to 2008 and why just extending unemployment benefits, giving money to small businesses, uh, the Federal Reserve pouring money into the economy. Why won't that work in the long term? Uh, well, I think there, there, there are two or three basic problems. Here. Let's call it three basic problems that uh, are, um, are, are really signatures of this situation. The first is that the major industries in which the United States is competitive, uh, which depend upon world markets, are seeing their markets basically dry up. Uh, and that's true for, uh, if you think about aerospace, uh, civilian aircraft industry, major industry, major employer. Uh, it depends upon world demand for aircraft. And since nobody's flying, there is no demand for new aircraft. Uh, one can go down the list. Of the, oh, the oil industry, you may not like it, but it, it fueled the recovery in the last 12 years. And uh, it now operates in the United States at, uh, in a situation where the price that they get is half the cost of extraction. It's not going to go on like that indefinitely. So all these elements that make up the advanced sectors of the economy are uh, in in limbo at the moment, and they're not likely. There's nothing much you can do just by pouring money into the firms. You can keep the firms alive, but you can't make their markets function. You can't make it profitable for them to produce what they're accustomed to producing. So that whole sector needs to be reorganized and mobilized to do things that we actually need doing, like dealing with climate change, for example, or reconstructing our living environments so that we can handle the public health emergencies that are obviously uh, have hit us now and may well hit us again in the future. Those kinds of things require a, a kind of reorganization and mobilization of the most advanced sector. That's not where most of the jobs are. Most of the jobs are in services. The problem in services, small and medium businesses, is that uh, I'm in a service sector, you're in a service sector, your job depends upon my willingness uh, to buy your your the service you're providing, uh, and your job depends upon my having an income, and therefore me having a job. Uh, and the service sector, of course, is in this enormous retrenchment. Uh, so one has to think about how to structure that sector so that at least a significant part of it can keep going. And the third thing is that, uh, yes, all these incomes have become, the economists call this a contingent. They've all become uncertain and uh, people are becoming anxious over whether they have incomes and their incomes in many cases are being cut off. The unemployment insurance that they got in April and ran out in June and July 
but their debts haven't have are not contingent. Their debts continue to pile up. So the rent bill is still there. The mortgage bill is still there. The utility bill is still there. And all of these things uh, can put them under enormous pressure and end up having putting them out of a house, a place to live. Uh, as soon as the as the as the moratorium on foreclosures and evictions is lifted, uh, and so one has to think about how to deal with that, and that's a major reset because there's no reason why people who are who are put out of work by a public health emergency should be put out of their homes because they they couldn't maintain incomes while their while their debts continued to pile up. That's a fundamental injustice. You know, as as that problem develops, for the moment it is held in abeyance. Uh, it's going to have to be dealt with because it will. It should meet an enormous amount of of, of popular resistance to force those kinds of uh, of um, you know, contracts to be fully enforced, and that means working it out because you know, have a lot of mom and pop landlords who are you know, own a few units, and their incomes depend upon uh, being able to get the the rental payments that they have. So you one has to work out a general resetting of the situation that can hold people more or less harmless in their situations. Simply to, I mean, pumping money into the economy can hold things up for a period of time, but it's not going to produce the recovery in my view. So the recommendations that you make sound a lot like the New Deal to me. I mean, a jobs guarantee. Yeah, they do to um, me too. <laughs> <laughs> so just to go over them, I mean, you have the jobs guarantee, you have rebuilding domestic manufacturing, uh, basically inventing a new economy uh, to deal with climate change and putting people to work there. Do you think that we're prepared to make such a large shift in the economy? Well, I think the American people are prepared to do it, sure. I think they're they're anxious for uh, the kind of leadership that would give them the opportunity to show what they could do. Uh, and I, that was true in 1933 as well. People were ready for the leadership when Roosevelt provided it. Could you get it done in the present political environment? Well, uh, you know, that depends upon what the people decide to do in November and whether the uh, elected leadership gets the message. And that's obviously going to be, a, under any circumstances, a, a, a pretty tough uh, road to hoe. But the New Deal is the right example. The New Deal showed that it is possible to reconstruct the economy. And it wasn't that Roosevelt simply revived the pre-existing economy of the 1920s or the early 1930s. No, uh, they, they set out to, to, uh, to change fundamentally the nature of American agriculture, to provide economic development through the American South and electricity that had never been there before, and to, uh, uh, to rebuild the entire what we now call infrastructure of the country, the, the roads, the, uh, the bridges, the airfields, the schools, the courthouses, uh, the university buildings. It's all over the country, the legacy of the New Deal. And this was imagined at the time. Uh, and that strikes me as fundamentally what the, the, the mindset we need to have in dealing with the aftermath of this, because we're not going to get back. Whatever one thinks about the economy that existed and that developed over the last 40 years and became really, it, it took a mature form in the last dozen years, we're not going to get it back. It's not coming back in that form. We're going to have to find new things for millions of people who've been working in offices who find themselves no longer needed, millions of people who have been working in services that are not going to be revived very quickly uh, to do. And uh, well, there are lots of things to do, 
uh, there's no shortage. There's never a shortage of, of, uh, of work to be done, but we have to organize people to be able to do it and bring to bear the, the talents of the advanced sectors and their capacity to get them off of doing things which people are not going to be needing uh, and not going to be demanding and, and into doing things that are actually uh, going to that the future generations are going to say, yes, that was a good idea. One of the most surprising things to me about the run-up to the election, and I know you're you're an economist, not a political pundit, but is that Trump is polling so well in the economy? Do you have a read on that? Oh, yeah, that is a bit of a mystery. Uh, but I suppose the first of all, that over the th- three and a half years before the pandemic, uh, the economy played out reasonably well for him, and the unemployment rate went down, the stock market went up, and it's so hard for people to. Uh, overlook that. And then he appears to be, uh, his strategy, and it may be succeeding, uh, is to persuade people that the pandemic was something that was not, uh, for which he's not to be held responsible. Uh, And furthermore, the idea that they're promoting, which is that when it's over, the economy will come back. And there, I I think it's understandable why a politician would express that message, but it's not a message to be believed. It is fundamentally unlikely that that's the case. Thank you for coming on here. It's such an intense, important issue, and I'm sort of shocked by the amount that it seems like normal people are not paying attention to the long-term effects this is going to have? I don't know. I think I think a lot of normal people do understand that the long-term effects are going to be very serious, but they have no voice yeah. uh, for, uh, you know, for making that concern concrete. So you need to have real alternatives out in front of people before they can grasp them. Yeah. Well, Jamie Galbraith, thank you so much for being here to discuss this important and, in my opinion, undercovered topic. Thank you very much. That's our show. Deconstructed is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Our producer is Zach Young. The show was mixed by Brian Pugh. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Betsy Reed is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. I'm Nausicaa Renner. You can find me on Twitter if you just search my name. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. Go to theintercept.com slash deconstructed to subscribe from your podcast platform of choice, iPhone, Android, whatever. If you're subscribed already, please do leave us a rating and review. It helps people find the show. And if you want to give us feedback, email us at podcast at theintercept.com. Thanks so much. See you next week. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com.